Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's podcast for Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 30. We'll first open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, uh, for this past year that you've given us, and we ask that you bless our activities in this coming year, that we could become even better examples for Jesus Christ and expanding your kingdom and the truth that you've given us through your word. Thanks again for Mark uh, in his diligence in preparing for these lessons. And bless this time together in Jesus' name. Good evening, Mark, and Happy New Year. Yes, good evening, and uh, Happy New Year to everyone in our studio and uh, listening to this podcast uh, around the world. We have been spending some time looking at the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which is the sequel to the uh, gospel attributed to Luke, and we are observing how that the book of Acts systematically records the fulfillment of all promises made to Old Covenant Israel, and is showing the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. We saw back in Acts chapter 1, while Christ was still visible to the disciples, even though he was in his resurrected uh, form, he stayed off and on for 40 days uh, visible to them. And he, he gave them the plot for the book of Acts back here in chapter 1. But they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's uh, chapter 1, verse 8 here. So we are wrapping up the first two parts of that, really, Jerusalem and Judea in chapter 7. There's going to be a big change in chapter 8, and we're going to switch to the third part of the plan. Stephen has been arrested here right after we were told in chapter 6, verse 7, that the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem exceedingly to even include a great company of the priests. So we are up, if we look at all of the passages in Acts, we're up into the tens of thousands of believers amongst the Judeans in the near proximity of Jerusalem. And so this kind of fulfills the first half of Jesus' mission for the disciples there in Acts chapter 1. Now Stephen has been accused of 
speaking bad things against Moses and against God. He's been accused of saying that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and will change the customs that Moses delivered. And in chapter 7 now, we get to hear Stephen's defense. And I may have mentioned last time that this wasn't a, a proper defense, as you would offer in a, in a trial if you were accused of a crime. But uh, he was on trial and was accused of a crime. And after looking at this a little more, it's, it's actually a much better defense than I had realized before. What uh, we looked at last time at the story of Abraham where Stephen began with his defense and he demonstrated the covenant of circumcision was given to Abraham and all the patriarchs continued in this covenant of circumcision. And what I didn't mention last time is that this demonstrated that these people of God could be pleasing without the physical temple in Jerusalem, uh, certainly, because that came you know, much, much later. And that it'll make a little more sense when we get to the end, but I wanted to point that out in the story of Abraham and the patriarchs. We also were told that they were buried, even though they were translocated into Egypt, they were buried in tombs in Palestine, Abraham had the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, and Jacob was buried in Shechem. So, interestingly, both of those areas today are still under nominal Palestinian control. And I believe the tomb of Joseph, I said Jacob, but the tomb of Joseph was in Shechem was burned a few years ago in protest against the Israelites. Israeli occupation of the West Bank. And of course, these tombs that they have today are really kind of rebuilt memorials to the patriarchs. And then they usually have them a cenotaph inside, which, you know, a black velvet uh, drape with all kinds of elaborate embroidery and, and so on on it. I got to see uh, Samuel's tomb, which was done like that. But uh, Joseph's tomb in Shechem was, uh, was burned. The uh, tombs down in Hebron are uh, shared between Orthodox a Jewish group of some sort and um, a Muslim group, and they have there hasn't been any damage to that building. That's a massive structure, the only one of Herod the Great structures that still stands. But these tombs, in Stephen's defense, demonstrate that they were still looking back to the promises given to Abraham where he was promised this land, even though he never owned any part of it except for these tombs. And Abraham understood that this represented something even more important, understood something that would come way down the road in what was known as the latter days. As Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Abraham saw my day and was glad. He understood that this land promise was something spiritual in nature beyond real estate and that it involved being able to live in God's presence for all time, for all of eternity. And Stephen will kind of come back to that here. So then we moved into the story of Moses. Moses was, of course, a type of Jesus Christ. And what we looked at last time, 
down through verse 28, was that when Moses appeared as the deliverer of Israel the first time, Israel had no respect for him whatsoever, and they basically ignored him, and he was driven away into the wilderness. And that's where we're going to pick up our story here. Let's back up to verse 29 and read 29 through 35. On hearing this, Moses fled. He took up his residence as an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Forty years later, an angel appeared to him in the desert near Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. As he drew near to observe it carefully, the voice of the Lord was heard. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and dared look no more. The Lord said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you into Egypt. All right, thank you. Now, just as the God of Israel, Yahweh, was with the patriarchs when they were in Egypt and first appeared to Abraham in modern-day Iraq, Mesopotamia, Moses has fled to Arabia, which is not anywhere near Palestine. I mean, I guess it's relatively near, but it's not Palestine. It is not the so-called promised land at all. And, and we're seeing a subtle pattern in Stephen's defense of how God is with his people no matter where they are. By implication, this would teach us that God is not tied to any geographic area, which will come back to answer their accusation that he talked about Jesus coming back to destroy the temple. Moses went to this land of Midian, which is... Uh, likely an area in northwest Saudi Arabia, just a little bit south of the Jordanian border, right on the east side of the Red Sea. And he worked there as a shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness and married a native girl over there. And so his, his sons were not pure-blood Israelites. They were circumcised. That's a whole interesting story. Uh, Stephen doesn't go into that much to uh, his wife's chagrin. But here in verse 30, after these 40 years uh, were finished, he had this vision, a message from God, in terms of a flame of fire in a bush. And we're even told uh, that he had to take his feet off because the place that you're standing in is holy ground. Now this is very pertinent to this point about the temple in Jerusalem because it was of course, considered holy ground, the holiest ground or the only holy ground in all of Israel. Yet here, Stephen is recalling the scripture that said that way over in Arabia is a spot of holy ground. And now it is announced to Moses that he is going to be sent back to Egypt. 
so let's pick up the reading here at verse 35 and go down to 41. This very Moses, whom they had rejected with the words, Who has appointed you ruler and judge? Was the one whom God, through the angel appearing to him in the thorn bush, sent to be their ruler and deliverer. It was he who led them forth, all the while performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, and for forty years in the desert. This Moses is the one who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you from among your kinsmen a prophet like me. In that desert assembly, it was he who was in conversation with the angel on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He too received the oracles of life to pass on to you. He it was whom our fathers would not obey, rather they thrust him aside and longed to return to Egypt. Make us gods that will be our leaders, they said to Aaron. As for that Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we have no idea what has happened to him. It was then that they fashioned the calf and offered sacrifice to the idol and had a festive celebration over the product of their own hands. All right, thank you, Leslie. So Moses, uh, when he was 40 years of age, when he tried to intervene in behalf of Israel, they scoffed at him and asked, who made you to be a ruler and a judge over us? God, of course, had uh, indirectly, but uh, they didn't accept it. But then he sent back when he's 80 years old, and he worked great wonders and signs in Egypt. And in the Red Sea, of course, where all of Pharaoh's army was destroyed. And then in the wilderness for 40 years where water was provided to millions of people in an area that has absolutely no rainfall or hardly anything green and growing at all. They were fed and watered and protected uh, for 40 years in the wilderness. So there were great signs and wonders. So there's, there's an intentional parallel between Moses and Jesus. Jesus was not recognized by Israel as their deliverer the first time that he appeared. But when he reappeared to them, there was no question who he was. And that's, of course, the theme of the book of Revelation. Those who pierced him shall see him coming in the clouds. And those things would be coming quickly, which is reinforced in virtually every New Testament book. John the Baptist, remember, uh, came out. His first message is that, that this judgment was at hand for mm-hmm. Israel. So this is a subtle theme in Stephen's defense that these deliverers God kept sending were not recognized the first time. And I may not have mentioned that even when the patriarchs went down to Egypt the first time, it's said that the first time they went down that they didn't know who Joseph was. But back in verse 13, the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren. So the second time Joseph, the deliverer of God's people, is made known. The second time Moses, the deliverer of God's people, is made known. And by implication, the second time Jesus made his presence known. That's this word parousia in the Greek, which is one of the four P's 
that's that are repeated throughout the book of Acts. Preaching, power, persecution, and parousia. Parousia means manifestation. It's not necessarily a coming. It's mistranslated coming in the King James and many English Bibles. But it just means presence, making one's presence known. Jesus never left us. He's been here with us the whole time. He was with them at this time, but in spirit form as opposed in fleshly form. But he would make his presence known when the Judean nation and the temple would be utterly uh, wiped off of the map. And that was imminent. The signs and wonders that Moses worked are parallel to the signs and wonders that uh, Jesus and the apostles were working. They were not signs really of good things. They were they were connected to impending judgment. And they had about 40 years to uh, figure this out before they would be utterly destroyed. In verse 37, very importantly, he quotes Deuteronomy 18.15, which is the prediction by Moses that God would raise up a prophet to you in, in your last days like me, and you better pay attention to him. Whoever doesn't pay attention to him will be utterly cut off from the people of God. And then Stephen goes on in verse 38 to remind everyone of all of the things that Moses had done for them as a deliverer. He received a message from God directly, received living oracles to pass on. And, of course, all of the Pharisees claimed to be the disciples of Moses. They believed that there were verbal oracles passed on in addition to the written books of the Torah that we have today. And this was the kind of the beginning of the Pharisaic tradition was of making these oral traditions of equal weight with the written word of God. This word church that appears in the in some translations in verse 38, the church in the wilderness, is there, uh, I guess, to show that what a terrible word that is to use in English Bibles. This word means assembly or congregation, a called out assembly. And from the Hebrew, it's always translated as assembly or congregation. And that Greek word, Ecclesia is how the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, translated that word, Ecclesia. So in their mind, it, the New Testament church is, is just like the Old Testament assembly. And it's unfortunate that we use this word church. It's not a word that we use in common conversational English unless we're talking about a church building or a congregation or something like that but it it has um, i think a stilted meaning because it's not used in ordinary conversation if if we uh, use the idea of an assembly or a congregation that would be a little bit broader but it's really referring to god's people the people and what we are today is the restoration of israel in spiritual form which is the whole theme of the book of acts and so there, there is a connection between the old and the new that's uh, a lot closer than many of us probably have been taught for most of our lives. Mark, I have a question. Uh, yeah. What would the, about the word temple? 
would that be equivalent to ecclesia or uh, they use no because temple to... yeah temple is a, is definitely referring to a building so it's a totally different concept than the idea of an assembly of an ecclesia a congregation or an assembly or something like that if i knew how to use my fancy new ipad here I could uh, look up the definition of temple in the Greek, but... Uh, they also probably. talk about tabernacle, don't they, Mark? Uh, yes, and, and those words are important here in Stephen's defense because he's just about to talk about the tabernacle, and so we will be pointing out the difference between the tabernacle and the temple. And it does relate to this idea that Stephen is demonstrating God's presence perusia in the Greek amongst his people no matter where they are located geographically that it is not tied to a specific location and that's the key difference between a temple and a tabernacle one moves and the other is immovable it's fixed in one precise location and so he's going to allude to that here as his argument develops Right now, he's brought out the fact that these customs of Moses, remember this is part of the accusations against him, is that Jesus will, has not yet, okay, and many of us have been taught that the law was done away with at the cross, but I don't believe that's accurate. Stephen is going to talk now about these customs and laws that were delivered to Moses, or to Israel through Moses here. In verse 39... He ominously points out that the fathers of Israel would not be obedient to the words of God delivered through Moses, but turned back in their hearts to Egypt. You know, they longed for the food they had and the, 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 the trees and everything. They're out there, you know, in the wilderness. And they asked Aaron to make us gods that will go before us. Moses is still up on the mountain. Uh, Mount Sinai, we don't know what has happened to him. And so they they used all of this gold that they brought out of Egypt. They, they looted the land of Egypt when they left, which is recorded in the book of Exodus. But they had a lot of valuable things with them. And they turned some of the gold jewelry and things and mirrors and whatnot into, the, into a golden calf. Hathor was an Egyptian goddess that was depicted as a calf or cow. And so likely this idol looked like one of the Egyptian idols that they had been familiar with all of their lives in Egypt. So they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their hands instead of the the words of God that were delivered through Moses. So Stephen is establishing a pattern of the rejection of God's deliverance and God's message by the children of Israel. We can continue now, verses 42 through 50. But God turned away from them and abandoned them to worship of the galaxies in the heavens. So we find it written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for forty years in the desert? O house of Israel, 
Not at all. You took along the tent of Moloch and the star of the god Raphan, the images you had made for your cult. For that I will exile you beyond Babylon. Our fathers in the desert had the meeting tent as God prescribed it when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. The next generation of our fathers inherited it. Under Joshua, they brought it into the land during the conquest of those peoples whom God drove out to make room for our fathers. So it was until the time of David who found favor with God and begged that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. It was Solomon, however, who constructed the building for that house. Yet the Most High does not dwell in buildings made by human hands. For as the prophet says, The heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you build me? asks the Lord. What is my resting place to be like? Did not my hand make all these things? All right, thank you. Now this kind of concludes his historical account as part of his defense. The the idea of making a calf in the wilderness during the 40 years of, of wanderings after coming out of Egypt jumps between verse 41 and 42 to the book of Amos, which is quoted here in verses 42 and 43. Amos was written to the northern kingdom of Israel shortly before their utter destruction by the Assyrian uh, Empire out of Nineveh. And there's some interesting history behind all this, but if, if we recall, after Solomon died, the ten northern tribes rebelled against his son, who was just a big, arrogant jerk. And they said, we have nothing to do with the house of David. And they separated themselves off, and they created their own kingdom. And the first thing that the new king did Jeroboam was to recreate the golden calf that was made in during the exodus at Mount Sinai. He built two of them, put one uh, in the south and one up in the north at Dan, the northern border of the country, so that his people wouldn't be tempted to go up to Jerusalem to Solomon's temple to worship. So the vast bulk of Israel regressed back to this Egyptian idolatry over and over again and specifically Amos also condemns them for worshiping the host of heavens planets and other celestial bodies were worshipped by the Assyrians at the time that Amos wrote and the smaller countries adopted the religious practices of these big powerful countries to try to avoid being uh, conquered by them, but it it didn't do any good. But it's all idolatry, and Stephen is establishing this very consistent pattern of idolatry uh, that lasted throughout all of the history of Israel. Molech and the star uh, Rephan was the name for the planet Saturn. Molech is involved with the idea of uh, 
it was one of the pagan gods, but it also involved the idea of human sacrifice, uh, burning children to death is sacrificed to these pagan gods. And uh, it would lead to them being exiled out of the land, beyond Babylon, way far away. It actually is stated as Damascus in the original passage in Amos, but uh, Babylon is much further away than Damascus from Palestine. But uh, this, of course, is what happened. Ninety-five percent of all the descendants of Israel were carried away shortly after Amos prophesied and never, ever came back, never were restored into Judah. And that's really the subject of the book of Acts that we're about to get to. But they were dispersed in a way far more final than the dispersion of the Judeans after the Babylonian conquest in 586 B.C., 120 years later. Now, he brings back this idea of the tabernacle, and that that word means a tent or a dwelling place, or really a dwelling place that is a tent, but it can be used to to denote a dwelling place that's not a tent later, but it originally was a tent where everyone lived. Oh, and I found that word temple, which is a totally different word, means a fane, a shrine, or a temple. So they are all different words. The assembly, the tabernacle, and the temple, those are all different words with different meanings. Leslie's translation had tent instead of tabernacle, so that would... Okay. Would be pretty pretty accurate, I guess. That the tent, the tent yes. sanctuary, yeah. actually. Well, tab- again, tabernacle is not used in common English conversation, but tent is. So, mm-hmm. you know, tent is a much better way to <laughs> describe this to somebody today in who speaks English. Well, tabernacle has the connotation to me as being a permanent place, like a temple. You know, I think of. Tabernacles, they call them tabernacles, churches, tabernacle of such and such, or, you know, so. It's well, the Mormons the use that. Is a real yes, temple. right, the Mormons, yeah, okay. The Mormon well, tabernacle. Is there a holy connotation to tabernacle? Well, only because it's a word that's found in the Bible and nowhere else. So any word that is only found in the Bible and nowhere else and is not used in common conversation takes on a special religious or holy uh, connotation. But that edge was probably not there when the words were originally recorded. It was just talking about a tent. But but here we know that this is more than just an ordinary tent because it's the tent of the testimony uh, in verse 44. It was the tent to cover the law of Moses, the tablets of stone that Moses uh, brought down from Mount Sinai. Now, they did offer slain beasts and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness at this tabernacle, which Amos mentions. It's not saying that they didn't do it. They did do it, but they should have not done. They should have done that and not done these other things, which are idolatrous. They did both. And so it really made the animal sacrifices of no effect at the tabernacle. And so Israel was sorely punished uh, over and over again for these idolatrous practices. Now, beginning here in verse 44, he recounts the history that they had this tabernacle made according to the pattern 
that was revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai. They brought it with them throughout the rest of the 40 years of wandering. And then after Moses died, it was brought in with Joshua when they crossed the Jordan River and entered into Palestine, the promised land. Joshua is actually the same word as Jesus. Joshua in Aramaic and the, the Greek version of that is Jesus, but it's the same name. And, of course, Joshua was a, a figure of uh, really Christ in the sense of his spiritual body uh, after he ascended into heaven. His people possessed the land figuratively. They became the new Israel and so on, which is really what the book of Acts is all about. And so Joshua just as Moses prefigured Christ in his fleshly form, Joshua prefigured Christ in his spiritual form, working through his body of believers. They took possession of the land from uh, Gentiles, from foreigners, and God thrust them out of their way. And, and this continued all the way up until the time of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked about building a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And, of course, the people that Stephen are talking to would have been familiar with every detail of all of this history, and Stephen didn't have to recap all of it, and Luke didn't have to recap everything probably that Stephen actually said that day, but it would have called to mind the entire story that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures when David asked God the first time about building a house, God says, well, don't worry about that. I'm going to build you a house that will last for all of eternity. And this was a prophecy, of course, of the establishment of physical Israel with Christ as the ruler on David's throne of this spiritually recreated Israel in the last days. And so if we understand that Stephen knew that and that his listeners could remember that, Stephen is making a case that this permanent house was not really something important. It wasn't there in the beginning. It didn't go back to Abraham. It didn't go back to Moses. It didn't even show up until after David's death. And he concludes, well, he, he mentions that Solomon did build a house, but the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. And then he quotes Isaiah 66. The heaven is my throne, the earth the footstool of my feet. What type of house could you possibly build for me? What is the place of my rest? Didn't I make all of these things? <laughs> anyway, that you would build a house out of. And so Stephen has just made a powerful case that the temple was not permanent. The physical temple in physical Jerusalem was never intended by God to be permanent. It, it showed up uh, way late in the history of Israel, and it was representative of a higher truth. And this higher truth is that God is the God of everything, not just of Palestine, not just of the temple in Jerusalem. And he quotes Isaiah to prove this. Mark? Yes? That raises a very interesting point. Where do you find the first mention of the temple in the Old Testament? At what point did that actually 
was that first discussed. I, I, I know there was the Ark of the Covenant was talked about, but what about the temple? Well, it's, as, as Tom pointed out, it was always the tabernacle from Mount Sinai all the way up through Joshua, the book of Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And then at the end of David's life, once David has established himself in Jerusalem, I believe he ruled in Hebron first, and then the latter part of his reign, he, he conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites and then converted that into his capital. And towards the end of his life, he has built himself a fine palace using all these materials and craftsmen from the Phoenician countries to the north, Tyre and Sidon. And he doesn't think it's right. He, he has brought the ark up to Jerusalem, and he has built a tent for it. And it's not the tent where the the altar is. It's that's a whole fascinating study we'll have to get to someday, the Tabernacle of David. Because instead of the ark being hidden in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could be close to it, it was pitch black in there, so he couldn't really see it. But instead of it being in that Holy of Holy place, it was just sitting out under an awning, where anyone even a foreigner, and there were many foreigners in David's administration in his army, they could see God's throne right there. And this is a very powerful precursor to the restored kingdom of David that Christ would establish, that would be open to all the peoples of the world. So there was a tabernacle there, but it bothered David that he had this fancy palace of stone and cedar and God's throne sat outside under a tent. And so he asked God, you know, about it, can I build you a palace like mine, basically? And God doesn't let him do it. He lets Solomon do it. And, and of course, Solomon is deeply connected to idolatry. Uh, he married all of these foreign princesses and allowed them to set up their own religion uh, right there in Jerusalem, presumably in this temple that he had just made for God. So Stephen, I think, has established that this temple, uh, you know, was something that wasn't permanent. It, it didn't go back to the beginning of God's covenant at all, back to the days of Abraham. It didn't even go back to Moses, that it showed up, you know, during the time of Solomon, who was somewhat of an apostate, uh, and who hopefully repented uh, before he died, but uh, it was not part of God's permanent plan, I think, is what he's established here. Mark, would this not seem that then the evangelicals of our day who are preoccupied with the idea of, uh, of rebuilding a temple are actually engaging in an old idolatry that's already been practiced before? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not quite that clear-cut, but it is, it is, you're certainly on the right track. It was a temporary thing that was demonstrating part of God's future work of redemption through Jesus Christ. And it has, since that work has been finalized and accomplished, a physical temple is, I mean, as useless as teats on a boar hog, to use a colloquial expression. I mean, it serves no purpose whatsoever. I mean, you're, you're taking a God who has established himself as the creator of the entire universe, and now you're trying to tie him back to a specific geographic location. 
So it, it's a huge regression. It's like a dog returning to its own vomit. It, it's just a horrible, horrible abomination. And it's really, a re, we're, we're ahead of ourselves a little bit because we're just about to see what reaction the Pharisees had to this uh, speech of Stephen's. And they could not distinguish between the spiritual and the carnal, between the shadow and the reality. And, and Stephen is pointing this out to them. He's, he's about to uh, tell them that they're missing the whole point. And uh, we have all these religious leaders today involved with rebuilding the Temple of Jerusalem, and they are just repeating the exact same error of the Pharisees uh, here in the first century. They're also building their own monstrous temples, many of which we've seen, churches that hold 20,000 people and so on. Oh, well, yeah, that, and that's a whole other study uh, where, where the difference between <laughs> the new spiritual temple of God, the living stones, the restored spiritual Israel is totally confused with uh, real estate. And that's, that's a whole other tragic uh, issue. Thank you. All right. So Stevens made his case, and uh, at this point he may or may not have received a, a horrible response from the audience. We don't know, but he rolls right back into uh, a, a very harsh conclusion here. Let's read uh, 51 through 53, please. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are always opposing the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did before you. Was there ever any prophet whom your fathers did not persecute? In their day, they put to death those who foretold the coming of the just one. Now you, in your turn, have become his betrayers and murderers. You who received the law through the ministry of angels have not observed it. Great, thank you. So he's using a pretty harsh words here just as Jesus did against these people and he's basically telling them that they are fighting against God's spirit just like their forebears had done as had been recounted in his defense and remember he's already mentioned Deuteronomy 18:15 where Moses had predicted that a prophet like him in order a prophet who would be communicating a lot of things from God to the people, <laughs> giving a covenant. That's, that's really what distinguishes Moses from the later prophets. Moses dictated a covenant. Jesus, like Moses, dictated and created a new covenant. So he's alluded to that, and now he's basically shown that they are consistently following the pattern of all their forebears in all of Israel before them, and he accuses them of betraying and murdering the Messiah, the righteous one, mm -hmm. obviously referring to the Messiah. And then he, he grinds it in, you who received the law uh, as it was ordained by angels and did not keep it. By violating Deuteronomy 18.15, they have basically made the whole law of Moses of no effect by not being ready and not paying attention to the prophet that Moses said was coming. This is probably 
place to stop because this kind of ends uh, Stephen's defense here, and it gets really nasty. And we'll see what happened uh, next time here, and then roll right into Chapter 8, where as a result of Stephen's arrest, things changed dramatically for the saints in Jerusalem. It'll be interesting to note that Stephen was part of the seven who had been appointed to take care of the Hellenist widows uh, earlier on in the book of Acts, and that it was this huge number of Greek-speaking Judeans who stayed in Jerusalem after Pentecost that are going to be impacted more than the natives who speak Aramaic. And we're going to see that they they probably stay behind, but that the ones who speak Greek are going to be scattered out of uh, Judea to continue on with Christ's uh, mission that we read at the beginning of our lesson back in Acts 1. So that's a little preview here. Mark, it sounds like Stephen is going on the offensive much as Jesus did, and which probably accounts for why he ended up the way he did. Yes. I mean, de- definitely very aggressive. And then again, his concluding paragraph is extremely offensive. It's true. He's proven it. He's demonstrated it. But uh, definitely not a way to cool off a heated situation. He was no diplomat. No. He was a Christian. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. That was a great study once again, Mark. And we'll look forward to continuing on next week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.